And then God went silent. Imagine for a moment living in a world where, let's say 400 or so years ago, God stopped talking. Now, hard to imagine what it might look like for us. Maybe, uh, maybe somehow all the Bibles had been lost uh, or, or the Holy Spirit was inexplicably taken from us such that as we read the scriptures, they were just words rattling around. However it was, God stopped talking. Imagine what it would do to us if from the 1600s we hadn't heard God say a peep. Well, you'd want to hear from God, wouldn't you? You'd want to know what his plans were. You'd want to know him, but couldn't. We would pour over his last words, the last communication we'd had from him. We'd want to try and work out what next. Has, has God given up? Has he just abandoned his creation and walked away? Are his promises just forgotten? Is his work left undone? Will he come back? How would we know? What will he say when he returns? What should we expect when God comes back? Now, that was the situation Israel found themselves in. Well, slightly better than that. At least God had said to them he was coming back. It wasn't just silence. He'd made a promise that one day he would return. Let me, let me read for, for you from Malachi chapter 4. That's the last book in the Old Testament. If you're following along in your Bible, it should just be a couple of pages back. This was the last word that God had spoken about 450 years before we get to Matthew. And God had said this through the prophet Malachi. For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Talk about setting expectations. What do you expect? Well, Israel was expecting something quite astounding. Now, I want to set this study up in this way because I want us to think for a moment about what it is that we expect when we come across the Lord Jesus. What are our expectations about him? Now, of course, we, we know the story. We know what comes next. We know how it unfolds and what Jesus goes on to do eventually. But it's very easy to lose sight of the Jesus of the Bible. It's very easy to forget about who Jesus really is and to allow our own memories and our own desires, our own picture of Jesus, shape who we think he is. 
My aim for today is very simple. I want us to know Jesus better. I want us to know Jesus uh, objectively, his place in the big picture, who he is. And I want us to know Jesus relationally and personally to deepen in our relationship with him. Well, Israel had a particular set of expectations and we'll see if they were met as we meet this character, John the Baptist. Now we're in Matthew chapter 3 and so much of this chapter is given over to John. And I've got three headings that I'm going to describe John with, the prophet, the message and then the washing. John the Baptist is such an intriguing character. I don't know if you feel that as, as you read about him. He's so strange. There are so many things about him that are, that are unusual. You're kind of not sure where he is. He just appears on the scene all of a sudden, a lot like Jesus. We heard about John the Baptist's, John the Baptist's birth. We knew the circumstances surrounding that. They were quite miraculous, really, a lot like Jesus' birth. And then really nothing all the way through to now. Presumably, John the Baptist was also one of the little boys who was around when Herod ordered all the little boys killed. So where has he been? What has he done? We don't know. And yet, despite how strange he is, he was seriously, seriously popular. I mean, in today's terms, this guy had millions of followers on his Instagram, right? I mean, look at him, he's just this guy out in the desert. Chapter 3 and verse 1, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And yet, despite being in the middle of nowhere, look down at verse 5, people from Jerusalem, all Judea and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him. The crowds are there, the leaders are there. John the Baptist was such a big figure in history. He's referenced in material outside of the Bible. You can go and read Antiquities by Josephus and he mentions John the Baptist. In fact, in Acts 19, some 20, 30 years later, there were still individuals calling themselves disciples of John. He made a big splash. Why? Well, because everyone was expecting the prophet. Everyone was expecting Elijah to come as Malachi 4. The last thing God said was, Elijah is coming. They had a bit of a wait, four and a half centuries, and here is one who really looked a lot like Elijah. You can go read in 2 Kings chapter 1. There's a description given of Elijah. He was one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. If you haven't heard his story, well worth reading it. The description of Elijah was a hairy man with a leather belt. Now, that, that's, that's a little bit of an unfortunate mental picture, right? A person who is that hairy that all they have to wear is a leather belt. But let's, let's not go there. Uh, and yet here is John the Baptist. We read in verse 4, he had camel hair garment and a leather belt. He's eating the food of the wilderness, the locusts and the wild honey. And he was in the wilderness, the place where so often God's people would go and find God. A new exodus, if you like. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus identifies John the Baptist as Elijah. Here he is. Elijah has come. And what's going to happen next? 
Well, if you think about what we just read in Malachi 4, the great and terrible day of the Lord comes next. When the wicked are judged and crushed underfoot, when a curse will fall upon the land. Or in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, which is quoted in Matthew here for us, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. See, Elijah comes and then comes God. Prepare the way. And so the prophet arrived and he arrived bringing a message. It's a nice short one. It's there in sentence in verse number two for us. He came saying, John the Baptist came saying, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now you might wish perhaps that your preachers would sometimes preach that short, repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. But it's a sentence that is full of meaning. There's at least two parts to it. Right? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven has come near. It doesn't mean it geographically. It's not that God's armies were even then going to overthrow the Romans. and It's not that they are geographically close. It's that time it is near. The place where God rules, the king has nearly arrived. And so prepare the way. Not physically so much. It's not that we have to go and smooth out the potholes in the road so that the king's carriage won't be too bumpy. No, prepare your hearts. For the Lord, when he comes, you remember again, Malachi 4, will turn hearts of fathers, children, children to fathers. And if not, there will be a curse upon the land. Prepare your hearts for the one who comes. And so, repent. It's a very strange thing to say to God's people. Repent. You know the meaning of the word repent? We, we can mean a few different things by it, but it, it's not just feel sorry. We can feel sorry about all sorts of things without having to repent about anything. It doesn't mean superficially change your mind. It's just kind of go, oh yeah, whatever, give it lip service. It certainly doesn't mean do penance. Repentance does not mean that. No, repentance is such a deep-seated change of your mind that your life changes too. If you like, it means stop going that way, turn around and go that way instead. Stop living the way you have been and start living God's ways. Such a strange thing to say to the Jews. They, they were God's people. What do you mean stop living this way and turn around and live that way? Well... The Jews, however excited they might have been at the prospect of God's king arriving, had a real problem. And it's a problem that is illustrated for us very powerfully in the leadership of Israel as they came out to see John the Baptist. You see what happens as they arrive? Verse number 7. When John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, there's, there's a lovely little way to greet someone. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, he says, produce fruit consistent with repentance. You see, these leadership, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, I'm not going to go into a lot of depth about who they were. Let's just say they were the seriously religious people of the day. 
They were the ones who were always at church, always following the rules, the regulations, all the rest of it. But John looks at them and says, you are wicked. You are evil. You are sinners. You are hypocrites. Just to be a Jew is definitely not enough. He says to them in verse 9, Don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. Don't think that simply saying we are descendant of Abraham is enough. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, repentance, it's not enough to just talk the talk. It's not enough even to have an outward show. No, it affects your whole life from the heart all the way out. You want to be ready for the king, John was saying to God's people. You want to be ready for the day of the Lord? The day when the wicked are judged? When God's king will arrive and destroy like pottery those who oppose him? Then repent. That is how you prepare. Repent and be baptised. So the prophet, he came with a message. He also came with a washing, this baptism. Repent and be baptised, he says to them. Now, what is this all about? What is this baptism? I mean, we call the guy John the Baptist. It seemingly is pretty important to what he was doing. What is it all about? Well, they clearly understood it. Matthew doesn't have to explain it for us. He doesn't have to tell us what it's about. They understood it. They got the symbol. Ritual washing was part of their religious life. Now, it's a little bit unfortunate that we've kept the word baptism it, it really just means washing, dunking or sprinkling or cleansing. or it, it can mean any of those sorts of ideas, the idea of washing something clean. Baptism is just the Greek word for washing. So what is this washing about? Well, it could be, and seems likely, that at that time it was how you became a Jew. It, it was part of that sequence of events you had to go through if you weren't Jewish, you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew, right? You had to, well, you had to be circumcised if you were male. That was, that was non-optional. You usually had to go through a sort of probationary time and that could be a year, two years. It could be a whole lifetime. Depending on who you were, you might never get to be a full Jew, but your children could. And you had to go through the ritual washing, the baptism to become a Jew. So in some ways, John the Baptist is saying to Jews, you have to become real Jews. You have to really become the people of God. By this act of washing, you symbolize your repentance. You symbolize your change. And so he says in verse 11, I baptize you, I wash you with water for repentance. It's not that washing something changes it or makes it repent. But it was the symbol, the very powerful symbol. You used to be dirty and now you are clean. It's a great symbol. You used to be one way and now you are a different way. 
And so you see in verse 6, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sin. Coming forward and saying, here is my dirt, here is my guilt, here is my past. I want to be washed of it and clean as I begin again with God. It's as if they were coming and saying, we're pagan. We aren't part of God's people. And we know that God will judge. So we declare our sin. We want to get our lives together. We want to repent and turn to God. The prophet appeared. John the Baptist came saying to the people, get ready because God is coming. Get ready because the very next thing is the Lord will arrive and he will judge. See, as he continues in verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. I'm symbolizing your washing now, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Now I've always taken those verses to be nice verses. John baptised with water, Jesus baptises with the Holy Spirit and fire and, and immediately I think Pentecost and I think the fire coming down and the Spirit and I think, well, isn't that lovely, right? Jesus has a, a powerful baptism with the Spirit and that's a great thing and it is a great thing. But having reflected on it, I don't think that's what these verses are about. These verses are about judgment. The fire that comes is the fire that condemns. The spirit who comes is a spirit who convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. It's a picture that comes from Joel chapter 2. Uh, it, it's quoted in Acts later on in the Bible. But it's, well in Joel, the spirit descends in the midst of judgment. The spirit brings in the age of God's condemnation of sinners. And so John the Baptist says, he comes and he threshes the wheat and the chaff, that which is not his, is burned. A fire that consumes the ungodly. John expected judgment to fall. And then Jesus came. I mean, talk about expectations. John the Baptist was, was frantic. He was desperate. He saw what was coming and he wanted to prepare the people of God for it. He wanted to prepare the path for the Lord to arrive that he might find at least some who were faithful to him. There's a great danger in domesticating Jesus. There's a temptation that we face to take the lovely bits of the Gospels, the nice bits about Jesus. He healed the sick. He made the lame to walk. He cast out demons. What a great guy. He fed the multitudes. He brought victory. He brought health. He brought, well, I guess you could say he even brought some wealth. There was a fish and they found a coin in its mouth. He brought teachings of love and peace and compassion. 
And while all of that is true, there is a danger that if that becomes our vision of Jesus, that we might lose sight that he is the Lord. It puts me in mind of a line out of uh, one of the Narnia stories, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. My kids are reading it at the moment. And there's a moment where one of the characters, I think it's Lucy, says about Aslan, the great lion, who's the the fierce leader. He really is Jesus in the stories, right? It's very, very clear parallel. He goes on to die for them. Uh, Sorry, spoilers. And Lucy says at one moment, no, it's not Lucy, it's Mrs. Beaver, says about Aslan at one moment, he's not a tame lion. He just captures it so well in that moment. Jesus is not domesticated by us. He isn't somebody that we can go and snuggle up to and just share our deepest moments with and uh, perhaps braid his hair. Nor is he domesticated such that he will do our bidding. No, Jesus, Jesus is the one who came as the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrived as the judgment of God began, as the one who John the Baptist warned of, who comes to burn the chaff. We must have our expectations of Jesus set right. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John. It's another one of the strange things about John the Baptist. I've wondered about that moment, that interaction. They were cousins. John and Jesus were cousins to each other. Did they grow up knowing each other? That that incident in Jerusalem when Jesus was 13 and he'd gone and he'd been teaching the teachers. Was John aware of that? Had Had he been there? Did he spend all his life growing up being compared to cousin Jesus? Ah, why can't you be more like your cousin? Or perhaps Jesus was the awesome cousin to have, I don't know. The kingdom of God is at hand, John proclaimed. And the king arrived. Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan, verse 13, to be baptized by him. John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, yet you come to me. But Jesus answered him, allow it for now. This is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. John allowed him to be baptized. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. A voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What amazing words. There are very few times in the history of humanity, the history of the whole creation, where God has spoken audibly into his creation. They are so few. You can go and read the entire Bible and you'll find but a handful of them. It's interesting that at times when God does speak and we know the words, so often it's like he quotes himself. He uses words from scripture as he speaks. And this is no different. He takes two ideas and joins them together. You want to talk about expectations being off? expectations being not quite right. Well, tell you what, God blew expectations out of the water. He did something in this one sentence that absolutely no one was expecting. He quotes Psalm 2, 
this is my beloved son. Psalm 2 or the psalm about the Messiah, the psalm about the king, the psalm about the king who comes and destroys God's enemies. That bit maybe they were expecting. In fact, that bit I reckon they were even hoping for. God's king is going to come. He's going to throw off the the Roman rulers. He's going to finally set us free. We're going to have the nation of Israel back again. We are going to rule. Here it comes. But God combined it with Isaiah. It's a whole section of Isaiah from 42 to 53, all about a servant who suffers for others. That is the one that God is well pleased with, the servant who dies. See, in that one sentence, God joined together the king who shatters those who oppose God and the servant who is killed for the sin of many. The entire gospel, the entire good news of Jesus is in that one sentence. It's fantastic. Jesus is the one who does the will of God for God's people. See, this baptism for the repentance of sin, it wasn't a baptism for repentance of his own sin. He had none. No, but rather it was a baptism for us to bear our sin. Let's talk about expectations. I don't think John the Baptist understood this. He didn't expect this. Back in Matthew 11, again, John will send messengers to Jesus to say, are you the one? It was kind of expecting a bit more. It was kind of expecting something a bit different. Where's, where's the, the rule and the might and the armies and the... Uh? John didn't understand it. How could judgment and salvation possibly come together? I wonder about your expectations of Jesus. What is it that we can learn from this? And those two truths from that one sentence that God spoke are two truths that we must hold together. We must hold firmly too. You lose sight of either one of them and you're going to be in real trouble. Jesus is God's King. Jesus is the Lord who comes in judgment. The Lord who comes to rule and to reign. To reign over God's people and to smash those who are his enemies. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, John said. Repent and be washed for the forgiveness of your sins. We need to take very seriously the example of the religious leaders in this story. We need to take to heart what we see them do wrong. Their mindset was, well, I'm in. I'm I'm one of God's people. I have the right heritage, the right traditions, the right... So it doesn't really matter what I do. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter who I am. Repentance is not cheap. Repentance is not easy. Repentance is a whole change of life. And I wonder for us as God's people now, for us as those who claim God as our Father and Jesus as our Saviour and our King, how different is your life to the pagans around you? 
How different is your life to your neighbour who's never even heard of Jesus? To your family member who is outright against Jesus? To your colleague who claims the name of Jesus but has never stepped foot in a church and wouldn't know a book of the Bible? To your friends who've laughed at you your whole life for calling yourself a Christian? but who really see no difference. We really need to take their warning to heart. We can't have a mindset that says, oh, I'll deal with sin one day. I'll get there. I'll get there eventually. No, have you turned your back on your old self? Have you truly repented? You can't say, oh, I follow Jesus, but I still live the old way. I follow Jesus but nothing has changed. That's a bit like saying, I've given up on sugar, but I'll have two in my tea, thanks. Well, that doesn't work. You can't say you've given up on sugar while still partaking of it. I follow Jesus. Well, have you repented of your sin? You can't repent and keep fiddling with sin. Well, if you do, you haven't repented. You see, this teaching, this reality, this truth about the call of Jesus needs to be part of our lives. It needs to be part of our evangelism, to be honest. When, when we're sharing about Jesus with others, they also need to hear this call. The kingdom of God is at hand. The king has arrived and what he calls on you to do is to repent, to turn away from your old self and to turn towards God. I, I, I often fail at that, to be honest, in evangelism. It's so much easier to preach nice Jesus. He gives life. He brings forgiveness. He promises you success now in its various forms and eternity in heaven. And all of that is true. But he also calls on you to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow him, to die to your old self in your daily life that transformed by, from the heart by the spirit you might be his. Friends, this is the nonsense of institutional religion. That as if by somehow belonging, God would be pleased with you. No, we must repent for Jesus is God's king. However, lest you think that this is just a descent into moralism, right? and I'm just telling you to pull your socks up and work harder, we have to also have the second part of that sentence in mind. Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is the one by whose stripes we are healed. And I don't mean stripes as in he dressed up in a tiger suit. I mean stripes as in the results of the whiplash. Stripes as the picture for the events of his death, where he died in my place and yours, such that our failure to repent might be forgiven, such that our sin might be dealt with. Jesus, the suffering servant, by whom our very identity changes, by whom we become God's children. You see, you and me, we are the stones that God made children out of. (laughs) That's us. Untimely born, brought out of nothing to be his. How good is that? 
brought into true relationship with him. I don't want you just to know about Jesus. I want you to know Jesus, to have a relationship with him that produces fruit. Now, of course, I want you to know him as he truly is. I want you to know him as he reveals himself to us, not to make Jesus up into the picture you want him to be, to rightly fear the judge of all, but to rightly trust the saviour of his people, to love and serve the one, well, who took our sin and to love him so much that your sin would become abhorrent to you. That the work of the Spirit that Jesus does would change your heart. That God might move you to repentance. This is no longer a moralistic exercise where you have to work really hard to become a good enough person. This is now a relationship with God where he knows you and loves you and changes you such that you hate sin and love his ways. I want to finish by reading from Galatians chapter 5. I'm not going to explain it, just going to read it. Hear what Paul says as he talks about the effect that the Spirit has on us. The picture of what it looks like to know God and to live in his love. He says this from Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16. He says, I say then, walk by the Spirit And you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. See, the old way, listen to this list, the old way, the old way of living by the flesh, not by God's spirit is this, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, And that's a very broad term, a very, very broad term, right? Whether we're talking adultery, whether we're talking sex outside marriage in any form, whether we're talking about same-sex relationships, whether we're talking about pornography, whether we're talking about lusting after people in your mind. Moral impurity, he continues on. Promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy. Outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You haven't repented. But the fruit of the Spirit You want to produce fruit in keeping with repentance? You want to live God's way as you know him and love him and as he knows you and loves you, as his spirit fills you? Well, this is the way we live. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. The law is not against such things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. What are your expectations about Jesus? I hope today you've seen him as the Bible wants to show him to us. God's King who comes to judge all sin and the suffering servant. 
the one who died in your place, that your past might be forgiven, that his spirit might be given to you, that you might know him and love him and listen to him and obey him, such that repentance in your life will flow from the heart out, that all that we do and all that we are might be for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for how you introduced him, preparing John the Baptist beforehand, bringing Elijah back to proclaim the coming of the great and glorious and terrible day of the Lord, a day when judgment would fall upon your enemies and salvation go out to the ends of the earth. Father, we thank you that we are the stones that you have made children out of, that in the Lord Jesus you took us who were utterly undeserving and brought us to life. We thank you that by your Spirit you produce repentance, that by your Spirit you bring about in us a desire to live your way. And so, Father, please would we know the Lord Jesus more and more and more, such that out of love for him, a desire to obey him, we might live your ways. And Father, we ask this for your glory, that we would not be hypocrites like the Sadducees and the Pharisees, that we might indeed bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.